What is an evangelical? What exactly does that term describe? Is it a movement that's contrary to the way of Jesus presented in the Bible? Has evangelical faith become too politicized? How should we understand Jesus saying that my kingdom is not of this world? Hey, join Sean and I as we discuss these provocative, really pressing questions that, that are brought to focus for us in a new book by New Testament scholar Constantine Campbell in his book, Jesus Versus Evangelicals. Sean, let me give a little background on the author yeah. to this uh, and what I think his purpose is for, for writing this. Uh, Constantine Campbell is a native Australian who has spent a lot of time in the U.S. He was a New Testament faculty mm-hmm. member at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for many years. Uh, but has recently gone back to Australia. He left his teaching position at Trinity, gone back to Australia, and and by the tone of the book has apparently become quite disillusioned mm-hmm. with the the expression of evangelical faith that he found particularly in the United States when he was here. Mm-hmm. That I think is the the primary emphasis of his book. I think his audience and his purpose is to point out areas where I, where he thinks that the 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 practice of American evangelical faith is contrary to how he reads the New Testament as laying out the way of Jesus. Yeah, that's well said. When I when I see this, I have a few thoughts. Number one, it says Jesus first evangelicals. I can't help but get a little bit defensive <laughs> because I'm an evangelical. These are my people. And also, there's been a lot of books recently kind of beating up on evangelicals, so to speak. Now, whether we deserve it or not, we will get to that. But his perspective as an Australian is particularly interesting to me because he's an insider as an evangelical, but an outsider. And he's talking about evangelicalism broader than just in America. But it kind of says this seems to be the heart of where you know, evangelicalism is centered at. So let's yeah. focus on that. And I think there, there's a really important difference between the setting in the U.S. and the setting in Australia. Mm. I mean, evangelical faith in Australia is considered an outlier. Mm. Uh, I mean, Australia is is much more like, you know, the U.K. and the rest of Western Europe. Sure. It's actually probably more like Scandinavia mm. when, it, when it comes to the way they mm. regard religious faith than it is the United States. And so, you know, evangelical faith is a distinct, very small minority in Australia. And even though the the Hillsong movement, for example, you know, was born and bred in Australia, it's exported now to various parts of the world. But that, I think, is is probably, probably not what you would call the thinking person's expression of evangelical faith. Hmm. That's more of a charismatic, <laughs> sure. uh, not to say, not... Yeah, that, no, no, I know what you mean. Uh, don't don't, don't, don't call, read too much into that. Don't call me up and <laughs> yell at us about Hillsong. I, actually, when I when I was teaching in Australia for stretches, I visited several Hillsong, oh, wow. Hillsong and loved them, actually. They were great experiences. Mm. Um, but that I think that's the way it's perceived largely in Australia. But anyway, Fair enough. He, come, he, he comes to a place where... Uh, evangelicals, they're, they're more of an endangered species mm. in Australia than they are in the U.S. and have nothing like the degree of political influence that American evangelicals yep. have had. I mean, nothing even remotely close to that. So he that is, makes sense. I think he's understandably, I think, ca- caught a little bit off guard, but also mm. very critical of the way, and we'll get to this in a second, yeah. the way that the evangelical faith has been politicized in the United States. 
Fair enough. And even not only being outsiders, but issues like gun control are not the same there. Issues like abortion, not the same there. So again, an outsider just brings an interesting perspective. So I think Christians should, evangelicals should be willing to read this and ask, are there areas that I need to do better? And are there areas that I might disagree with? But let's yeah. start with what you think he gets right in his critique. Well, I, I do think that there is a branch of evangelical faith that has become much too politicized. Hmm. Uh, we'll get to that in more detail in a minute. Okay. But I think the, the expressions of evangelical faith that have fused with Christian nationalism, which we've talked about on this program mm -hmm. several times before, mm -hmm. uh, I, think, I think that critique, I think, is, is right on target. Mm. Uh, now, I think, you know, we'll, I think he, he holds that Christian faith actually has more, much more of a public dimension than you might think from his critique of that. Uh, I think he's, he's also right in the, in the fact that evangelicals can be very judgmental mm. about particular things. And, and I think in, in, implicit in that critique is a lack of compassion mm. and lack of empathy for people who are really struggling and wrestling really mm. hard with things. Uh, I think you're right. I think he assumes uh, he—well, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. I think, there, I think he's also right to distinguish between certain acceptable and unacceptable sins mm. that we—I think certain branches of evangelical faith take some sins a lot more seriously than they take others— and I think, I think he's right to point out that the things that we consider acceptable sins, like pride, greed, you know, bullying, thing, yep. arrogance, things like that, are yep. things that Jesus, I think, particularly came hard, mm. down hard upon. Mm. Uh, so I think those are, I think those are okay. I think three things sort of right off the bat that I think he, he's absolutely right mm. about some of those things. Uh, there are certain sins that you dare not confess in a church setting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and he even says things like doubt, like he went through a season of doubt and the church does not handle doubt well. And we have beaten that drum, so to speak, how yeah. much we would echo that. So yeah. there, there's a lot of positive critiques. And I think, I think he's also right in that the, you know, the, the mega church movement has largely been characterized by celebrity mm. and consumerism. Mm. Um, and, and I think a, a general unwillingness to tell the truth about certain types of sins that might be particularly offensive to mm. seekers mm. who are looking to the megachurch to find the gospel. Uh, so I think, I think he's right about that. Um, but, okay. you know, so, and, but that, I think he's off to a good start, it seems to me, in some of the things he's gotten right. And he, again, his perspective as, an, as sort of an insider-outsider, like you suggest, I think gives him sort of uni a unique set of lenses through which to view our evangelical movement. So he starts off pretty early and defines what's meant by evangelical. And that word means so many different things. And he does a good job of explaining the different ways it can be understood and then kind of says there's enough there in common we can use it, but it's also so broad that the critique only goes so far. Correct. So how does he define an evangelical? Well, he says there are three types. They are, there are theological mm -hmm. evangelicals, which he, I think, still would call himself one of those. Agreed. Uh, which has a certain commitment to a, a handful of theological convictions, namely mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the inerrancy and reliability of the scriptures, yep. uh, 
the, the centrality of the cross of Jesus mm-hmm. and go with that, I think, the resurrection, the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus mm-hmm. and the general reli- reliability of the biblical accounts mm-hmm. and the need for what he calls uh, you know, activism and evangelism, mm-hmm. the, the need to bear, to bear private and public witness to mm-hmm. your faith with the, with the goal of bringing other people to saving faith in Christ. Those, I think, he, he was saying, he would say those are the theological essentials. Uh, whether all the rest of that is up for grabs, sure. I, I don't think he would say that. Mm. Uh, there are some things where he admits that there's room to agree to disagree, where we would respectfully dis- sure. disagree. Sure. Um, but on theologically, that's where you have Democrat, Republican, black, white, Etc. There's a wide range of those in the theological right. realm that right. differs when you get to his other two characterizations. That's right. And so the cultural evangelical is the one who adheres to what he would, I think he would refer to as American cultural distinctives uh, <clears throat> that are, would be viewed, I think, quite differently in other, in other parts of the world. Uh, and then the political evangelical is the one for whom... Uh, the, the the how can I put this best in in simple terms? Where the the advance of of kingdom priorities through political power mm. is a really high priority. Mm. Whether they see, you know, whether they see the United States as a sort of exceptional, unique theological nation sure. may may differ, but I think what what the political evangelical has in common. With, with what he's thinking about is there, it's the, the use of po- political leverage mm. and public policy in order to advance the righteousness of God. Fair enough. So in that sense, when you say politically, someone has a lot of confidence and emphasis and focus on the political system. That would be a kind of political evangelical. Right. Now, he says someone can be in one of them, two of them, all three of them. And in any case, there's one yeah. and the other two, he's not sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm very comfortable calling myself a theological evangelical. Me too. Maybe a little bit less so on the cultural and political mm. aspects, even though I, you know, the political side, I think you just, you have to nuance that really carefully you because Christ, Christian faith is an intrinsically public faith. Mm. It has, a, it has an unmistakable public dimension to it. The, yep. king, the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness, will have individuals rightly related to God and a rightly ordered society. Hmm. So that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's a part of the kingdom vision all the way back to the prophets in the Old Testament. Hmm. And Jesus said, Jesus said nothing that I can find where the definition of the kingdom in the Gospels was anything different than the definition of the kingdom that the prophets were looking forward to. Okay, okay. So you've mentioned some of the positive things that his critique you agree with. What is the heart of his critique of evangelicalism? That we've lost the pursuit of Jesus for other things mm. that distract us from it. Mm. That, it. That our pursuit of Jesus has been diluted, not, not, not like we're crazy, but watered down, diluted. Um, okay. Because we're pursuing other things such as uh, cultural dominance, political power, um, you know, materialism, 
you know, things like that. Okay. Uh, now, that critique should sit well with evangelicals, meaning we should pay attention if we've lost the way of Jesus. Given that we're Christ followers, we better pay some attention and make sure we get it right. Something, something I vaguely recall in the book of Revelation about one of the seven churches mm. losing their first love. Mm. Uh, and, and I think he, you know, he is not suggesting here that Christian faith is totally private. Agreed. So, so when he's talking about the pursuit of Jesus, he's referring to the, the pursuit of what he calls the way of Jesus, which is a way of following Jesus that affects both one's private life and the public dimension mm -hmm. of faith. And so to lose either of those, I think he would be, he would say, you have lost your faithfulness to the way of Jesus. Mm. And you're, you're absolutely right. That, I mean, if we've lost the pursuit of Jesus for other things that are distracting us from it, we, we at least need to listen to that. Yeah. Ag uh, agreed. That's why even reading this book, as much as I differed with a number of his takes on things, I had to ask myself, is he right? And what course correction? And how much do we need to get better? That's a question we've got to ask, even if it's uncomfortable and difficult. And he does that well. He starts the book off in the realm of politics yes, in a pretty does. jarring way, which tells That's me right. this isn't just a soft, subtle book. He's just going to jump right out of the gates That's and right. criticize the evangelical community, which works well on a communication level. In one sense, it grabs attention, but he comes down hard on the politicization of the Christian faith particularly in the last kind of five to six years, so to speak. And he makes the point that the kingdom is not of this world. What is that critique? And how does he see the connection between faith yeah. and politics? And what do you think about it? Well, I think he, he is, I understand why he comes down hard on it, because hmm. his background as an Australian, you know, he, I mean, he came to faith as a college student in Australia, then moved to the U.S. to you know, a, a continuous career teaching. Sure. And so the contrast between those two had to be jarring <laughs> for him. And especially, and I think what he's pointing out is something that we've talked about, you know, on a handful mm -hmm. of occasions. I do think that some of the folks who have constituted our tribe evangel of evangelicals in the past has moved, has, has moved farther to the right politically. And I don't, I, I don't get the sense that you and I have moved, but I do think our tribe has moved in the last six, seven years mm. in ways that I have not seen prior to that. And I think that's, that's, I think, what he's responding to mm. when he says the Christian faith has become more politicized, that there is more dependence on the political arena and on political power than ever before to accomplish kingdom type objectives and aims. Mm. And he, I mean, of course he's right that the kingdom of God is not ultimately of this world, which means it's not dependent upon any political or social structure right. in order to bring the kingdom to its, to its, its consummation. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's what he means by that. Now, he's also really clear that there's, there's a systemic dimension to sin. Yep. And there's a cultural and political dimension to injustice mm -hmm. that requires, sometimes requires political means to address. Mm -hmm. and, and that shouldn't be a big surprise. 
If our view of sin is what it is, we should expect that it would infect not only individuals, but also institutions and social structures. Mm -hmm. The idea of systemic sin should not be... uh, you know, hmm. should not be something that evangelicals should should shy, shy away from. Hmm. Racism, I think, is a good example of that. It's baked into our system. Now, hmm. I don't think it's as baked in as it was 50 years ago. Sure. But, you know, we have sinful individuals made racist laws that created racist institutions, some of which are still going today. And the, 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 the holdover effect is still with us. He's right to see all of that. So, but so that public dimension, I think we we can't deny. He is not suggesting that that the way of Jesus is a simply privatized faith. Sure, where all true. we care about is our own spiritual formation, and you know the the the, re- the rest of the world, you know, is like the rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. He doesn't believe that. Um, what he what he in his view the problem is an over reliance on political power to affect cultural transformation, and an over identification of the gospel with any one political party or political agenda. Hmm. And we said repeatedly here that uh, you know any time that the gospel becomes bound up with one political agenda, the gospel is eventually is the loser. Hmm. And we shouldn't be surprised that all political platforms are mixed bags because none of them was written with biblical faithfulness as its goal. Hmm. I think we also need to remember that it's true. I mean, he points out that the early church did not engage in anything remotely resembling political activism. And that's true. But the first century Roman world was not a democracy either. Right. It was was as totalitarian Hmm. a government as you will find. And so... The opportunity to affect social change that was afforded to the early church only came in in one way, and that was by by being salt and light and by infiltrating like yeast and leaven, infiltrating the world at the grassroots level and affecting cultural transformation Hmm. in the way that the church was so countercultural in almost everything they did. Mm That's helpful. So I, I appreciate that he's not calling for a privatized faith, and he makes that clear when he quotes people like Abraham Kuyper, who says, there's not a square inch of creation out of which God does not cry out its mind. So he's not calling for that, just pushing back on what I think is fair at times, a kind of idolatry or a savior kind of mentality in politics. Now, where I might push back on this is it's not just on one side of the aisle, We see this, like you said, all over the political realm, and obviously a higher percentage of self-described evangelicals vote Republicans, so it's fair to critique here, but I think there's a larger critique at play that needs to be brought into the realm as well. I think that, yeah, I think that's a a fair statement. Uh, I think there is as much, if not more so, reliance on the evangelical left on political Mm. power as there is on the right. Hmm. I think probably in, in more recent years, we've seen with the movement of the right, maybe that's maybe on a little bit more of a level playing field than it was before, hmm. where the reliance is similar. Uh, but but I, I guess I'd, I'd want to be really careful that, you know, we, we recognize on, on both sides that, you know, they have they have advocates on both sides where... The, the biblical priorities 
do take precedence over the political aspirations. Mm. And they are, they, are, they are politically engaged, I think appropriately so, on, some on both sides. I mean, there's a, way to be yep. there's a way to be politically engaged without it being idolatrous. Exactly. Insofar as we ask that question across the aisle, I think that's the right way to yeah. go. And we need to, although it can manifest itself in different ways. Yeah. I mean, he's, no, no doubt, he's beating up the right. Yes, Exclusively, yeah, and raising some fair questions. Yeah, but I think but, I think you're you're right. Some of the same critique could be made of the left. He just doesn't do it. Yes, yeah, fair enough, because that's his angle. Now, one one of the things he brings up a lot is that evangelicals are judgmental, and he goes back to this 2007 study by David Kinnaman at Barna called UnChristian that outsiders describe Christians, amongst other things, as being judgmental. Uh, do you think he's on to something here? Are we uniquely judgmental? Uniquely, no. Hmm. I think we have entered an age in the last decade where everybody with an ideology is judgmental. And I, I no longer believe that relativism is the dominant I agree. moral philosophy of the day. I we agree. have seen a new absolutism. And if, if anything, cancel culture is... You know, prime example number mm. one of a new absolutism wh where we differ is on the things that we hold to as absolutes. That's right. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I don't think that anybody is sort of uniquely judgmental, mm. particularly evangelicals. I think in the past we have held to culturally unpopular positions on a, on the sanctity of life and on sexuality and other sure. things that appear to the general culture as being intolerant and judgmental. When in reality, what would make us less judgmental is not the tone that we would, would change, but changing our views, actually. And I think there's a, there's a segment of culture that won't be satisfied until our views actually change. I think that's right. Uh, now, I think there are, there are lessons to, to be learned about the way in which we engage some of these issues. And I think in the past, we've done this with a lack mm. of charity and a lack of empathy mm -hmm. and with an unwillingness to listen. Uh, and I think he's right to point that out. If that's what he means by judgmentalism, and I think the way he defines it when he said, Je when Jesus said, don't judge, is with an er sort of an arrogant condescension. Mm. And if that's what he means by that, then I'm 100% I'm, I'm with him because at no, no place calls for that. Mm. Uh, but what most the way most people read Jesus' admonition not to judge is not to make a moral assessment. Mm. And I, I'd want to point out, I mean, I, that's not hard to demonstrate. I want to point out that nobody lives in a world and nobody wants to live in a world where nobody makes moral assessments. Exactly. I mean, then we're looking at, you know, Lord of the Flies, uh, mm -hmm. Where might makes right, mm -hmm. and power is found at you know at the end of the of the end of the gun barrel, uh, but you know we've we've tried that, and no, nobody wants to live in that world, and nobody lives consistently with not making moral assessments. That's today. right. I mean nobody does to. that. Uh, in fact, I think Constantine himself makes moral assessments makes throughout the book. Yeah, boldly. quite quite a lot of them. Uh, so he's critique the, the critique he's making is about being arrogant and being condescending, like 
evangelicals consider themselves morally superior. Are there some who do? Yes. Yes, there are. Is that the norm? I'm not so sure about that. Hmm. Um, so that's a fair way to put it. I think you're right that evangelicals are not uniquely judgmental. Everybody is judgmental today. But we as evangelicals <clears throat> have a unique call to not judge hypocritically. Matthew chapter 7, take the plank out of your own eye before the speck in the eye of a brother. Right. We are, in their sense, we're, we're to judge false prophecy. We're to judge certain behavior as being wrong. But God is the one who judges the heart. So, yeah, everybody's doing it. I mean, yesterday, yesterday on, on Twitter, I asked a question. Somebody responded and said, every single day, some Christian, like, judges me in this way. And a response was, well, atheists do it too. This is a Christian response. And I thought, well, that's true, but there is a unique call for Christians not to do so yeah. and can rightly be called hypocritical when we don't follow that. So I think he's raising some fair questions rather than pointing to others outside and saying, hey, but they're judgmental too. Yeah. Not that you are doing that, but some people do. We need to look inside and go, am I acting with judgment against people? in a way that's not consistent with the grace and standard Jesus gave in John 7 when he says, make a righteous judgment. We've just got to look inside first. And I yeah. think it re at least raises some fair questions about yeah, that. Yeah, I think the, the issue today is that culturally people are equating making a moral assessment with being judgmental. Mm. And those are two entirely different things. Now, they can go together, but to say that they are necessarily the same thing, or to even say, some people will say that if you make a moral assessment about something in my life, you must hate me. Hmm. And we're, we're, I think hmm. we're entering toward dangerous territory when the, the accusation of hate is used not only to stifle discussion, hmm. but also to to render irrelevant a moral assessment that might actually be right on the target. Hmm. So let me ask you something related to question before is one of the things I see is he kind of chides evangelicals for putting too much effort into the political process to say overturn abortion and says, what if we put more effort into persuasion? And I look at that. And I think, you know what? We've put a lot of effort politically, put a huge effort pregnancy resource centers and a huge effort persuading people. We've done all of these in a balanced fashion in a way that just chiding the political side, I think misses the other balanced approach many evangelicals have taken. So in his mind, if we would push back less politically, there'd be kind of less vitriol and hatred and damage from the outside culture on things like abortion and on things like same-sex marriage. And I kind of think what you said earlier, I think, you know what? People would not be satisfied until we no, completely change our theology. So where I may be different in this book is I say we still have to be politically engaged on things like marriage because that's a way of actually loving our neighbor and trying to advance the objective good for society and kids. Now, I want to do it in a certain way that's gracious and kind towards my neighbor, but I don't think if we step back and spent less time in the political realm, people would just be more open to the message of Jesus until we take out the offensive things of Jesus, and that's something we can't do. 
Well, and I think what we need to be careful about is not to underestimate the educational value of the law. Mm. When Roe v. Wade was ratified by the Supreme Court, that had huge cultural educational value about the permissibility of abortion. And if nothing else happened as a result of the recent Dobbs decision to rescind Roe v. Wade, simply the educational value that that gives to the culture at large about the sacredness of life of the unborn, whether that, mm. whether that stops another, another single abortion or not, that educational value is worth, has mm. been worth the political engagement. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we've had people engaged at, at that level for a long time. We've also done all these other balancing things. I think so. Where not, not much has changed mm. in the instance of abortion over those 50 years. Mm. And I think we have to admit that on some things, the power of persuasion is limited. Now, what we, want, what we don't want to do is to pass laws that coerce people to do the things that we, among the people of God, are unwilling to do ourselves. Mm. That, I think, that's the height of hypocrisy. Um, but I, I would not say that political engagement, we, we, prob we probably disagree on some of the issues on which we're to be politically engaged. But he's not against being politically engaged. Sure, I mean, I, that's right. I suspect, I could be wrong about this, but you know, Australia has just in the last few years has had several referendums in various states for the legalization of euthanasia. And I suspect that Khan would be opposed to those and we would be very supportive of the, the efforts of various denominations to lobby politically so that the law stays like it is hmm. in those states and continues to prohibit euthanasia. Now, they're, they're losing in all those states, uh, but I don't think there's I don't think that political engagement has been in vain. Hmm. You know, there's an interesting tension that what you said earlier is that evangelicals are viewed here as being very individualistic when it comes to sin. But then he turns around and criticizes evangelicals for using the political process to fight the systems of abortion. Some ways it felt like I want to have my cake and eat it, too, yeah. that if somebody doesn't take the issue that I agree with politically on, then they're just individualistic. If they take a different one, then, you know, the other side of the knife, so to speak. So it's fair for us to step back and say, okay, are we being consistent? If we think there's systemic injustice on things like abortion, are people open to seeing systemic just injustice in other areas as well? I see inconsistency on both sides of that. Uh, yeah, to totally fair. Mm. Um, and I think there, there are certain social justice issues that are, are cool causes and others that are not. The unborn, the unborn happen to be not one of the cool causes. And even, I mean, even among Christian groups that are committed, I think, to all the right things theologically, in some of their justice efforts, they leave out the unborn because they mm. want they want to have common ground with others of, you know, uh, of secularists and other traditions, to be able to pursue the causes that that concern them the most. Mm. That I think is a tragic oversight, uh, because you know if we neglect the unborn, and and we're not committed to protecting the sanctity of life, as as a colossal injustice, 
then I'm not sure we have a lot of credibility for other issues of injustice as well. I, I think that's fair. Now, he, he had a, a statement here that jumped out to me where he said, evangelicals have a disdain <clears throat> for social action. Now, when I saw that, I paused. I thought, wait a minute. When I think of evangelicals, every church I've ever been to has some ministry reaching out to the poor, praying to resource center, encouraging adoption and foster care. Almost every evangelical church I've been to for a long time really does care about social action. Now, is he right that we pick some issues and not others? Maybe there's not enough attention paid to race. Fair question. Maybe not enough attention paid to immigration. Fair question. Maybe there's not enough attention paid to the environment. That's where the critique that comes in. We have to say, are we being consistent? But because certain people don't focus on certain social actions doesn't mean they don't care about social action. Right. They just focus on different issues. But that call for consistency is fair. I, I agree. And um, I think he's right to point out that what may be what may be underlying this is an unhealthy divide between the sacred and the secular. Um, mm. And I think we've, you know, this, we've talked about this before and how we view sure. the, the workplace, for example. Um, but I think that the, the, central, the central critique of this, I think, may have been right 30 years ago, mm. 40 years ago, mm. when, you know, when evangelical political action were just getting started. I mean, in the 60s, you know, Jerry Falwell very clear. He said ministers and marchers shouldn't mix hmm. in the civil rights legislation. Uh, and evangelicals wow. were, I mean, they, they were, you know, our, wow. tradi our tradition was not great in the support of civil rights in the 60s. Hmm. Um, now, I think we've gotten a lot better as it comes to addressing issues of race today, but that was, that was a long time coming. Um, I don't think that's fair to say today that there's a disdain for social action because yeah, yeah, maybe 30, 40 years ago, that, that pietism that, was a, that promoted a very privatized faith, that mm. was, you know, me and Jesus and my, my faith gets me my fire insurance, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and I'm just rescuing as many people off the Titanic as I can. Mm. You know, that was, I mean, that was sort of how, how I grew up yeah. spiritually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that the ministries that we were both influenced by mm -hmm. in Campus Crusade, now crew. Yep was very strongly that way. Mm -hmm. Now, their mission was strictly exactly. stated evangelism. That's fair. You know, the cultural, that's not what they were about. Right. Uh, but I, I do think his point about the sacred-secular divide, I think, is a good one. Mm. Uh, and I think we still see a, a lot of that distinction that the sacred are the things that really God really cares about and the secular, eh, not so much. Mm. But I don't see it in places like the, the way we consider the environment or the mm. poor or things like that. There, I think evangelicalism, for the most part, has a public relations problem, mm. not an action problem. That's fair. Uh, I think with, with some other issues, you know, maybe that sacred-secular dichotomy plays in a little bit, a little bit more. I got a few more for you I want to ask of provocative issues that he raised. He makes this distinction between acceptable and unacceptable sins. What is this difference and what do you conclude by it? This part was a little too convicting and I okay. I, I, okay. I wanted to move through All that. Right. I right. wanted to move through that quickly. Okay. But I think he's right about that. 
I think there are mm. some sins that you can't confess in most evangelical churches today mm. without the risk of being either thrown out or disowned or written off as permanently broken, you know, or things like that. Uh, the, 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 unaccept, the unacceptable sins, I think, have to do with sexuality, mm. with abortion. Um, the acceptable sins have to do with things that I think Jesus came down pretty hard on. Pride, arrogance, greed, materialism, you know, bullying, th mm. things like that, you know, condescension, uh, things like that. I think we tend not to take as seriously. Mm. And I think sometimes, sometimes I think we view people who have some of those traits we actually call them leaders <laughs> until until they go up and smoke. Yeah, um, and we you know we look at those we look at then we 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 look at people like that in business too. Sometimes I think there's actually a gender thing involved in that too because if women have those traits, we look at them differently than if men have them. Uh, we, you know we we have terms for women who have a lot of those you know pride arrogance traits differently, I think, than we view men that have those. But I think he is right that there are certain sins that we gloss over in many of our evangelical churches and certain, certain sins that we, that we would view the, the pre people who commit them as somewhat beyond redemption. And I think both those extremes, I think, are very problematic. Mm. I, that's fair. And I think he draws out at least fair questions of do we have certain sins that are unforgivable compared to others? And what did Jesus really condemn? That's a great question. Everyone should be convicted by. Now you talk about this mega church model. Uh, and he goes into some depth on this kind of focused on celebrity size, consumerism, materialism, and entertainment. In fact, he says a lot of celebrity have minimal theology kind of a rock star pastor and minimal relationships. That's his critique. Now, he does say there's kind of Willow Creek and there's a few famous, well-known that have had some issues from the top down, but probably a lot of churches, of mega churches are, are trying to live out faithfully. They don't all fall under these scandals and abuse. He says, but he does ask, is it fair to ask if this model in itself is healthy and wise. He at least asked that question. Here's here's how I view this. I, I, you know, I am I am loath to criticize churches hmm. who have been so successful at winning people to Christ. Hmm. And I think the, the 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 genius of the mega church movement is that they have they have a bit of the secret sauce. <clears throat> for how to win people who are on the fringes, who really have no interest in Christian faith, how to turn them mm -hmm. from seekers into followers of Jesus. Now, whether they have the right kind of environment to fully disciple people into a mature Christian faith, that's a fair question, I think, to raise. But, you know, I was involved in a mega church here mm. in the Los Angeles area for a long time. I was on the staff of one before it mm. became a mega church. Mm. And 
they're doing so many things right. Hmm. Uh, they teach the scriptures faithfully. You know, the the senior pastor is well educated. Uh, they they attract people who are coming from a wide variety of really hurting, broken situations. And they're they are they are providing the environment where the Spirit of God is producing mm-hmm. genuine life change in people. Now, the depth at which they go, fair I, I, th- I think that that's a fair question. But I think that's a fair question for most of our churches today. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, wh- whether they are engaged in the kind of discipling that, you know, we would see in a, in a movement on a college campus, for example— when you've got, you know, a, a much smaller group of people that you can focus your attention on and you can mentor, you know, some of these, some, most churches are too big to have any kind of meaningful mentoring. Mm. Uh, but I, 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 you know, celebrity, yeah, focused on that, yeah, probably too much on mm. that. Um, and, you know, some, I think some, you know, you know, five miles wide and two inches deep, that's probably true of some. That's not been my megachurch experience. Hmm. Um, though I, though I, 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 full full disclosure, I, I no longer attend. I much, I attend sure. We attend a much, much, much smaller place today and have found it very appropriate for, what we, for where we are in our spiritual lives. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, in focus on entertainment, yes. I think that that's a fair critique. But re- remember, you know, w- what are they competing with for time and attention? Yeah, with, that's with fair. With people in the general culture. I mean, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the talking head uh, for 45 minutes, you mm. know, preceded by two old hymns, you know, is not, not going to get anymore. the job done. Uh, and using all the media things at their disposal— We've talked about this before. I'm persuaded that Jesus probably would have done that too. Mm-hmm. Now, would he have been focused strictly on entertaining people? Obviously not. But mm-hmm. I think they are very creative in the way they use most media. And then you have to do that. So I think that, that, that I think, is a, that's an unfair critique. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'd want, I'd want to be sure that the people in my pews are not feeling like that they're just spectators. I'd want them to be meaningfully involved sure. in the worship. But uh, for the most part, the consumerism, materialism, I don't think is anything unique to megachurches. I mean, I think that's a cultural thing. That's a that's true. That's that's a human vice, not a church mm. one or an economic. That's not unique to an economic system. That's just a human vice that is going to play out regardless of the setting that we're in. Mm. So what I what I thought was so interesting, and I want to I want to ask you about this, is he, he particularly pointed out the preachers and sneakers phenomena yeah. among megachurch pastors mm-hmm. as an example of materialism sort of gone, run, run amok. What, what, I, know, I know for our listeners, you have, you have a lot of sneakers. I and do. You, and you've got some great ones. And your son is actually involved refurbishing. Mm-hmm. Always in reselling. He's got a business reselling them. Yep. So, what do you make? Is that is that a fair critique of materialism there? 
Oh, I think it's fair to ask the question, pastors who are getting a salary from people in the church who are sacrificing, should they be wearing $900 sneakers and $5,000 suits? These are very fair questions that should be asked. I think his critique of megachurches in many ways is just asking questions. Are we judging numbers over quality? Is discipleship taking place? He, to me, he's just asking a lot of questions we need to take seriously. And I think that's a fair question. Now, I'm not a pastor. I don't get a salary from a congregation. But I, I've had my son give me a pair of shoes that would get me on Preachers with Sneakers. <laughs> now, I don't wear them on stage when I'm preaching. Yeah. But if someone took a picture and threw me up there, they might offer a kind of critique, not knowing the background that an 18-year-old sacrificed to give that to his dad. So I think it's fair questions to ask. But I also always wonder... What's the background? Is there more to this? Was it a gift, et cetera? Trying to have charity, because I've been in the spotlight and a lot of people trying to knock me down. Bottom line with this book, I think we should read it with an open heart, with an open mind, and be willing to make course corrections if we need to. But I think he's going to have a lot more success critiquing. He's going to get a lot more readership from those who are already upset with the evangelical world than changing those within that actually need to change the way it's postured unfortunately. And his hope ultimately is in, in the kingdom of God, which we go. say amen to. Hey, thanks for joining us. Hope you've had a, enjoyed this conversation.